Okay, everybody. Hello and welcome to Investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith. Today is October 14th, 2020. I'm your host, Arusha Pierce, and today we have David Bars on the show. David is the founder and CEO of X Out Capital. Thanks for being here, David. Great to be here, Arusha. Thank you for having me. On today's podcast, we are going to talk about the current markets. We are going to talk about the concept that it's sometimes easier to exclude losing stocks from a portfolio than focus on the winning ones. And then we will end the episode on why it's important to focus on growth companies. So let's get right into the current market. The, uh, the current market, we're in a confirmed uptrend. Uh, we have zero distribution days on the NASDAQ, one on the S&P 500. Leading stocks are starting to act uh, quite a bit better. Uh, David, what are your thoughts on this market? Look, the, the market and predicting the future of the market is always uh, a very difficult thing to do and something I don't spend a lot of time trying to do. Uh, but I am an eternal optimist, and I'm a believer that the future is always going to be better. You might have periods of disruption, but ultimately, we are going to be a, a great place to invest. We being the United States of America is a great place to invest. And long term, if your outlook is good, Quite frankly, in the current environment, there is no better place to be than equities, U.S. equities. Right. Perfect. And yeah, so I, I agree with you. And we're all, we are going to get into more reasons why, you know, David feels this way. Um, David, first, let's get into your background, though, because it, it is a really interesting way that you got into investing. Walk us through your background and how you ended up uh, founding XL. Yeah, so I'll, if I go on, cut me off, but because uh, I get very passionate about this story. <laughs> please go, it's, please uh, go. It's a great story. You no, know, it's 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 hard not to be passionate about your own story, but uh, I I am uh, sometimes a little too effusive about it. But I was a um, a lawyer, uh, a bankruptcy lawyer. I, I chose bankruptcy law in part because it was a field not a lot of folks wanted to go into when I graduated law school. Happened to have been 1987, and a month into the start of my work uh, at a bankruptcy firm, which primarily represented creditors of companies in financial distress. October 1987, the stock market crashed. Oh, wow. And what that led to was a number of years of a lot of distress. And what gave me a little bit of an edge was the fact that the bankruptcy code had been recently amended. And there weren't that many young uh, attorneys who, who had studied it, and it put me in a position to be able to get into it pretty deeply, pretty quickly, advising some pretty substantial creditors, including then known as Chemical Bank, now, of course, J.P. Morgan Chase, and, and working on a lot of high-profile bankruptcies at that time frame. But one of the things that it parlayed me into was a market started to develop out of that era in trading secondary claims of distressed companies. So there were a lot of what's called high yield loans or highly leveraged transactions that were done. And smart investors realized that there was a way to invest sort of in a risk arbitrage format by buying senior debt instruments of distressed companies as a pretty safe way to invest. Because if you're higher up in the capital structure, you're likely to be first in line. And if those securities in some cases, loans were trading at discounts from par, you could make a very nice return if you made good underwriting decisions. So I started representing 
what became a very prolific market in trading of distressed debt. And one of my clients was a guy named Martin Whitman, and he had been in the business of mostly advising investors and or companies that were in distress. He had written some books about distress. He taught a class at Yale School of Management on distress. And I went into his organization after being his lawyer as a lawyer within the company. And then parlayed that era, and we're talking early 90s, of building a real distressed effort, both on the agency and principal side. And we kind of got into the asset management business by accident because we ended up using our knowledge, if you will, to take control of a troubled closed-end mutual fund. Okay. It owned a number of underperforming assets. Closed-end funds, different from mutual funds, trade at or sometimes discounts to net asset value. We looked at that no different than any other distressed instrument. Let's buy this at a discount and hopefully we can close the window of the discount from net asset value to where we were buying. And ultimately, we got enough of a position in the closed-end fund to have control rights. Wow. And we exercised those control rights by proxying for control of the company. What we didn't know was that the, the folks who were running that, that particular closed-end fund, which was called the Equity Strategies Fund, it was run by a bank then known as Security Pacific Bank, West Coast, where you are, yep. now part of Bank of America, they didn't want the fund, and we didn't know that at the time. So when we proxied for control, it was almost like we did them a favor. So they handed us the keys to this fund, which is wow. kind of a crazy story. Yeah. Um, not, not today's world, it's very hard to gain control of asset managers. You're seeing some of the, I think uh, Nelson Pelz just recently announced that he's making a play for, um, for a couple of asset management firms. And so you sort of see it even today in the, in, in the real world, what's going on right now. But... I'm sure Henderson, which is one of the firms that Nelson Pelz is going after, is not going to do it without a significant fight. Mm -hmm. um, and in that case, they just handed us the keys. So all of a sudden, <laughs> by accident, we're in the mutual fund business. Now, the story gets even more crazier because we use that fund to eventually buy control of a then bankrupt oil drilling company. By the way, we were buying senior debt instruments, okay. and that company was uh, known as Neighbors Industries, and we took Neighbors through a reorganization proceeding and merged our equity strategies fund into Neighbors and took it out of Chapter 11 in sort of a tax-free way. Wow. It made us one of the best balance sheet oil drilling service companies of that time. And as you probably know, oil drilling service companies even in today's marketplace, are highly levered. That's why they're all getting into trouble right now. Right. And so as an unlevered company, we were able to capture market share, enter into a lot of growth transactions, and quickly became a very strong performing stock, which then made us the mutual fund manager of the year for the best performance at that era. So all of a sudden, <laughs> this fund was the best performing mutual fund, won this award from Morningstar. We had no idea who Morningstar was. <laughs> and since we had merged it into Neighbors, we were out of business. So we didn't really have a business, but we used our accolade and decided to launch another mutual fund. Uh, Marty was uh, in the ripe old age of 70, so not likely to be starting new businesses when you're 70 years old. Mm -hmm. So we aptly said, David, we should name this third avenue fund because we made offices on third avenue in new york city 
And that's how Third Avenue came to be. And we took that business of just having a long only, actively managed, sort of, if you will, all style value fund. We could buy anything we wanted to in that fund, mm -hmm. uh, subject of course to mutual fund rules. And, and we built our business on that basis. So again, long story, sorry for it, but it was kind no. of a cool story. It is a really cool story. So, so while you're at Third Avenue, now you're focused on value, same, same kind of method that you were using before, except uh, so you're looking for undervalued assets and then you know, hoping that they now get appreciated by the market. And how long were you at Third Avenue? So for 25 years, uh, again, kind of started from scratch, built it up. Ultimately, we decided to partner with a publicly traded uh, asset management company known as Affiliated Managers Group okay. and grew our asset base, again, from nothing to at its peak in 2007, $31 billion in asset, of assets under management. And we did that by expanding our product base, expanding our distribution from not just the US, but globally uh, into institutional separately managed accounts. So we had uh, a myriad of products and distribution channels that helped us grow but all of it on the same fundamental investment philosophy of what we, we aptly called ourselves safe and cheap investors. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's right to the point uh, from a, from a marketing kind of standpoint, I, I think that's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. FINRA didn't like the use of the word uh, safe. <laughs> safe because right. There's, you know, theoretically no such thing as a safe investment, but, right. um, but we, uh, we would still describe what we meant by safe and what we meant by cheap as our marketing story and, and it really was what we were doing in our portfolios across the platform. Perfect. So David, let's take a quick break here and then when we continue, we're, we're going to talk about your next transition from Third Avenue to X out uh, because it's a really, really interesting story, a really interesting way to look at the market. Uh, but uh, remember right now, the market is in an uptrend, leading stocks are acting better. So just make sure you are keeping your watch list fresh. Also remember, we are in earnings season, so know when your stocks are reporting. So when we come back, we will talk more about David's transition to founding X out. And so stay tuned. I am here with Scott St. Clair. Scott's one of our senior product coaches at MarketSmith. Now, Scott, there are a ton of publicly traded stocks just on the U.S. I think it's over 5,000 stocks. Who has the time to go through all these stocks and find the very best ones? Yeah, most people don't, right? So what you need is a tool like MarketSmith. We have decades of research on what makes a great winning stock. So we've done all the research for you. So we're going to try to highlight those specific stocks with those great data points. So if you're looking for that next great potential big winner, orange stock ideas button, you just click on it and you've got some of the main reports that we use, including the Growth 250. Yeah, and the Growth 250 is the first list that I go through on the weekends. Yeah, it's the most popular one, but there are others. There's the Breaking Out Today, Stocks Near a Pivot, and then the Blue Dot List, right, which is very popular. It's gonna show you the stocks with the best relative strength. So we've done a lot of the work for you. What you have to do is review these lists. You're going to come up with some of the best ideas in that current market environment. Perfect. Mark Smith saves you time and makes investment research that much easier. For more information, go to Investors.com slash podcast 2020. David Bars is our guest on Investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith. 
Okay, David. So now we talked about third Ave. Now let's uh, let's transition where you, you left third Ave and now you went and you've uh, fast forward a little bit and, and now you founded X out. Walk us through that process of first just leaving third Ave, why you left and then why you ended up uh, starting uh, X out capital. Yeah, so in our last segment, I kind of left out a big hole, which was what happened after 2007, right? What happened yes. after 2007 was uh, the financial crisis came upon us in 2008 and nine. And for long only actively managed uh, asset managers, the market really, really became very difficult. And um, managing money in that kind of environment was, was a, a great challenge. It, only the few survive and only the best really outperform. And what I saw happening to me every day was flows of assets into fund products being dominated by the passive index strategies. And as, obviously, as we've seen since that era for the last 12 years running, passive investment strategies have really blown away the asset, the active investment strategies. And so I struggled with that until the end of 2015 when I made a decision to depart and, and took the time of my departure to, to reflect on what I had learned over 25 years in being in an active management space. And it, it really was the fundamental driver behind the creation of XL. And as you opened our segment with, it, it became clear to me that it was much easier quite frankly, and probably more sensible to think about what to leave out of your portfolio as opposed to what, put in, what to put in. And that excluding losers is a far more easier task than picking winners. And so that fundamental belief gave rise to the creation of Excel. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and it was really going your background because you can go and analyze companies and really figure if they're positioned well. And so how do you uh, choose what to exclude? So, so you break that down for us. Uh, how many companies are you looking at? Which ones, how many are you excluding? And how are you taking advantage of the, the passive strategy too? And so in, in the case of XOUT, again, we're an indexer we're, and, and we've licensed our first index to, to Granite Shares for their Granite Shares large cap equity ETF. Why did we select that one first? Because large cap US equity has really been the dominant asset class, if you will, for long equity and, and in passive investment strategy, whether it's the S&P 500 or the Vanguard or any one of the uh, myriad of options you have if you want to be exposed to large cap US equity, you have really done quite well quite well for the last 12 years. So flows have obviously dominated into that asset class. And that's where I thought about sort of like Wayne Gretzky was my favorite hockey player. He always went to the, where the puck was yes. going as opposed to where it is. And so I, I, I think about the market future and I look at where is this, where are these flows going? And, and I think they will continue to go that way irrespective of market conditions, because as I said at the beginning, long-term, I'm an internal optimist. I think large cap U.S. equity in the United States is the best asset class. So I wanted to capture some of that. So when I look at that, whether it's a S&P 500 or any of the other products, they're buying everything in that index, irrespective of whether that is a good 
or bad company. And our approach was, why do you have to buy them all? If you can get a subset of that by simply excluding the bad companies, or in our case, we call them the losers, uh, then, then you, you could probably do better. And, and we looked at this and studied it and tried to come up with a number of different factors that would help us in a quantitative way figure out how to exclude those so-called companies. And the driving force or theme behind that exclusion is what I consider to be one of the most forward-facing risks for all companies in all industries, and that's technological disruption. The change in technology and the rapidity of that change is beyond people's comprehension. And so the market does not reflect in the security prices, in my, in my opinion, what that disruption can or likely could be. And so for us, we came up with a number of factors to help define what should be those companies to exclude and simply focused on them. So I'm flipping the investment paradigm. I'm really doing everything opposite to the way I was trained for 25 years. I was yeah. trained to research, do a lot of due diligence, focus on my, my own research and pick those winners and, and not worry about the market because over time you're going to get taken out one or two ways. The market will reflect the value that you think exists or there'll be some kind of M&A transaction or strategic transaction that will recognize value. Guess what? In, in the case of deep value investments, that stopped happening and hasn't happened for 12 years for the most part. In our case, by simply looking at companies that are growing faster than others, that are hiring people more than others, that are using cash flow to buy back stock, that are spending money on CapEx or research and development to improve their technological advantages, that have management teams that recognize that technological disruption is a reasonable and foreseeable risk, and they're doing things to address it. And we take all those factors together and create a score, mm -hmm. and then just take the bottom 250 of the 500 companies in our constituent and just exclude them. And we balance that once a quarter. Okay, now with the management factor, now is that, that, that has to be more of a qualitative approach there, right? Where you're looking at, are you looking at their previous history and how, how they've done in the past with uh, technology disruption? Yeah, the, the way we found the best way to judge a management is, is quite frankly by how well the stock has performed. Okay. Uh, clearly, if a, if, a, if a management team is doing a good job with the company, then the stock's going to perform and reflect that job that the management team has done. And we simply take all 500 CEOs of the companies in our constituent and measure them against each other and how that company's performed. The better performers get a better score. The worst performers get a worse score. So if you're running a company that stock is not performing well, guess what's likely to happen to that CEO over time? They're likely to lose their job. So um, we're, we're just taking a pretty, a pretty simple measurement, quite frankly, but it's a way to score them all against each other. And, and what, what's interesting that you're letting the market score the, the stocks at, at sure. that point where they're and, and they're voting with their real money. Right. And they're pushing up the ones that they truly believe in and they're getting out of the ones that they don't believe in. Uh, now, when, when we were talking last week, uh, an interesting company came up and uh, this was you know, it used to be you know, the, 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 the granddaddy of them all, IBM. And uh, now. IBM, uh, IBM is an interesting example for your index. Walk us through that and how 
how that's uh, kind of uh, come in and out of or come out and back into your uh, index? Yeah, so IBM was a company that had been scoring poorly on our metrics and, and had been excluded. And then uh, a couple of quarters ago, uh, they closed their Red Hat uh, merger. Uh, quite frankly, I, I look at this as sort of a reverse merger. And I think uh, evidence of the truth to that statement is reflected in their most recent announcement about spinning off the infrastructure business of IBM really is going to become what was Red Hat's business, except they're still just gonna call it IBM. Probably a, a bunch of consultants that paid a lot of money to determine for them that IBM had a more recognizable name and brand than Red Hat. Yeah. And so, um, <laughs> so we might as well just keep calling it IBM. Right. But in any case, I mean, look, what they've been able to do is, is improve some of the metrics that we use for scoring. And, and ultimately it scored high enough to not be excluded. Again, I'm focused on exclusion, so when someone when a company gets included, it's because it's off my exclusion list. So I let the winners kind of take care of themselves. Hmm. I'm just focused on the next loser, but now IBM's in and it's kind of interesting to see how they are transitioning some of these corporate strategic decisions that they're making. And I, I'm, a, I'm quite frankly um, rooting for them. I'd like to see IBM turn things around because they had been, what it was, it was one of those companies that just quarter over quarter continued to uh, not generate real growth rates. Right. And, and, and sort of the ultimate, um, maybe, you know, this is a, a signal, but uh, look, Berkshire Hathaway got a lot of uh, notice for selling, right? They had been an owner of IBM and they sold it. I, I think, you know, when, when deep value investors like, like Warren Buffett sell something, uh, it's telling you one or two things. They, they gave up hope because it had been a value trap for them for some time. Right. Maybe they didn't really understand what the Red Hat transaction was, but I doubt that. Uh, maybe it's a time for, for growth investors to get in and look at it because the deep value guy is getting out. So it, it was kind of an interesting uh, asterisk, if you will, for, for what our model did. Yeah, no, that, that is interesting. Yeah, and sometimes, yeah, when one class of investors gives up on it, the other class is happy uh, to grab it. Now, one company that obviously is is always in in the news uh and that was excluded from the s p 500 but is 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 a a major disruptor and 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 could disrupt even more is tesla uh now is is this a company that that would be included in your index yes so it's in our constituency and it's in our constituency for um a couple of basic reasons which sort of surprise me when I hear that it's not in every other large cap U.S. equity right. index. Um, it's, it's a company that has certainly a substantial market cap. It is definitely one of the largest 500 equity market cap companies by a large margin. Hmm. It, um, it has generated uh, four straight quarters of earnings. One might maybe uh, argue that those earnings are somewhat uh, unclear but the fact of the matter is they reported them. They reported them on SEC regulated financial statements. So you have to take them for their word and, and they qualify. And so uh, Tesla was uh, part of our constituent and, and almost immediately the score was, it made it a very strong contender and it, it was in the portfolio. And, and it, look, it's a volatile stock. I think um, 
the S&P index committee has reported that they didn't include it because it's a volatile stock. I don't know. I didn't know that that was a reason to exclude something from an index, right. but uh, sort of silly to my, to, you know, my personal opinion. But um, the fact is it's in and it's, it is a, um, as you noted, a, a quite important company because while it's commonly referred to as an automotive company, it's really a technology company. And, exactly. and for folks that don't think what you said, that it's, it's, it's anything but a disruptor, right? We're, we're looking at excluding disruptees. The disruptors, we want them in that portfolio because we think they're the ones that are light years ahead of everybody else. Exactly. So let's take a quick break here, David. But remember, knowing what to eliminate from the start can improve your odds for success by enabling you to focus on winning stocks. So when we come back, we are going to talk about David's transition from really focusing on value companies and deep value and how he's kind of transitioned to uh, his, uh, his focus on growth. Stay tuned. Market Smith will give you a huge edge in the stock market. Better stocks, bigger profits. Market Smith is the top research platform for IBD. It's just the best tool for individual stock selection. Everything within Market Smith is designed to bring those best stocks to the surface. It does a lot of the work for you of filtering down to the potential leaders. It's when you take the training wheels off and you're ready to invest on a more professional level. Market Smith will help you take control of your investment life. If you want to get serious about investing, start your membership today. We are back with David Bars on investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith. Okay, David, let's go into why it's important to focus on growth companies because it really is an interesting transition. You came from a value background, uh, you came from a debt background first, and, and credit, and now you've transitioned, and now you're really looking towards disruption and growth companies. Uh, so, so uh, let's go a little bit more into that and how that's incorporated into the index but let me first ask you one question here um that the rebalancing that that's every quarter so some some companies could be excluded one time the next quarter they could come back in and it's for the most part it's uh, or it is all uh, completely all computer generated right that's correct it's it's a purely quantitative model no human judgment uh, that's important to me and i can get into that a little bit later but uh, but we do the rebalancing every quarter we use the most recent results uh, as part of our feeding our model and, uh, and measure those results and what information is imparted upon us. You know, as every reporting company must, they must report each and every quarter. And, and we're just relying on that fundamental data to drive the way our model works. And, and when a company is excluded, it's not a permanent decision. It's very possible that companies that are excluded this quarter could get included next quarter or in future quarters depending upon their financial performance so it is right. fundamentally driven and i think that's important for everyone to understand that, that none of these decisions are permanent decisions no and, and you're it's the, the it's adapting to the market right when the when the market starts to favor some other companies because they've done something on on an economic basis or earnings basis uh, you know, it has the flexibility to, to, to put those stocks back in. Like, for instance, like a number of oil companies right now might not be in that index, but eventually if things change, th those uh, type of oil companies could come back in, right? 
That's correct. And it's, but it's not a value versus growth bias in okay. the sense that, you know, a lot of folks are saying, I think one Wall Street firm came out with a buy recommendation on Exxon today. You know, this is, this is not because Exxon's cheap, it will get back into the portfolio. Exxon has to perform and it has to start growing its revenue base and, and adding employee, employees and, and, and generating cash flow and doing all the things that drive real growth. It, it's not just because the stock itself is, is cheap or cheap relative to its historical price. And so I, I don't view that as a metric that gives you much real help in making an investment decision. So let's talk a little bit about belief. Uh, because a lot of times when you are an analyst or uh, and when you're really digging into the financial statements and trying to come up with a story and trying to figure out whether it's undervalued and, and it's due to grow over the next few years, uh, you're, you're developing pretty sophisticated models. You're trying to come up, you're using the discounted cash flows you're, and you're trying to come up with some kind of price and figuring out, hey, is the market rewarding that price? Uh, now, it makes sense in many ways, and it's a good exercise to go through, but there's a trap to that, too, that I learned when I was studying this years ago, too. There's a, it, it's really dependent on, on your analysis, and sometimes you can get really so into the weeds that you may not necessarily uh, realize that things are changing. Yeah, and look, I lived and learned a lot from that over the 25 years of being at a deep value shop. You, you tend to really, really love your companies and you end up loving them more when they get cheaper. And so that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because what happened, and again, mostly post-financial crisis, I would say that strategy worked fairly well leading up to 2007 uh, because so much of the money was going into a number of these companies and you know, if you bought something at a discount from book value and it had a strong balance sheet, there was a pretty likely uh, chance that you were going to get rewarded, whether through stock market price performance or, as I said, strategic activity. Right. Post-financial crisis, that strategy has not really worked at all. And, and the growth companies have just continued to um, way, way outperform. And, and I remember, you know, having conversations with our research team about why is it that a company like Apple wasn't getting included in our screens as a value investment. And, and it was sort of discarded primarily because on a price basis, just how they measured it versus the relative value investments that we held in our portfolio, it was too expensive. And, you know, again, lesson learned, right? That was a huge mistake because that company's been one of the greatest performers. And, and then ultimately, uh, Berkshire Hathaway made it its their, their biggest position. So even they got the joke. Yeah. It took them a while, but they figured it out. Funny. And so, yeah. you know, I look at that and I, I see that personal bias and the, if you will, the personal beliefs of a portfolio manager, an actively managed portfolio, sometimes override logic and... Um, and quite frankly, what's happening around them, they're just blinded to it. And, and I, I, I made it my point that in this X out world for me, I was not gonna let personal bias or um, deep-seated beliefs drive any decision. It was gonna be purely model-based. 
No, and and, and uh, especially here at Investor Business Daily, we have learned over many many decades that you know, listening to the market, listening to what stocks are being rewarded and actually outperforming others is, is the way to go and, and really keep yourself out of trouble getting trapped in, in some of these companies that you don't realize right now they're getting disrupted, but but the market has realized it and they decided to put their money more towards an Apple versus a BlackBerry and, and, and things like that. Um, so let's talk about XOUT. Now, uh, for XOUT, you guys are charging 60 basis points. And it is—it's obviously more more expensive than a Vanguard and things like that. Uh, so walk us through that. Why why you know that 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 kind of charge is is worth it to go for an X out uh, type of option versus a, a cheaper index like a, a Vanguard? Yeah, no, look, I, again, I came from outside the ETF industry when I entered it, and when I was um, educating myself about the industry and and pitching my idea to the. To the market participants, I got um, you know shown to the door fairly quickly wow. by saying wow. I wanted to charge 60 basis points, and 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 that's because, quite frankly, as a large cap core product, even though it is what I'll call smarter beta, you know mm -hmm. we get yes. we won the award for best new smart beta ETF of 2019. Wow! Of course, nobody saw the award ceremony because we were all in a global <laughs> pandemic and quarantine from being able to go to the awards show. But, um, but we, we, we won that award for a reason, although I, I, don't, I don't consider it to be quite frankly a smart beta product, but the, the marketplace you know, frowned down upon a fee like this. And my argument was at the end of the day, the beta for a 250 stock portfolio isn't much different than the beta for a 500 stock portfolio. It's actually better on a relative basis because we're really excluding these poor performing companies. That's interesting. Um, but if you could outperform the market by two or 300 basis points, why shouldn't you be willing to pay 60 basis points for that? The reality is uh, the disruption event of, of this last year, and we just uh, achieved our one year anniversary last week, was the pandemic. The pandemic created that bifurcation in the market it in, of itself defining winners and losers. Right. And our outperformance has been 1300 basis points. So if someone wants to debate me about a 60 basis point management fee for a product that outperforms by 1300 basis points, I'll take them on. I'm ready to do that because <laughs> if I told them that I could deliver that before I started, they'd say, you're done, right? But you yep. know, now they want to debate me about fees because you know our industry. Our industry is a fee compression world that will continue forever. And uh, those who perform well will get rewarded and people pay the fees and those who don't shouldn't get paid the fees. So I recognize it's a, it's a have or have not environment. I've been through it for 25 years, so I know. Yeah, now, now, obviously, congrats on the, the one year anniversary. Now, there, there are gonna be a, a plenty of uh, advisors out there who, who want that th three year track record. Uh, and and which is which is pretty standard also for for the industry, uh, but what's interesting and and they may say oh you know this one extreme kind of example with the pandemic, but what is interesting is it doesn't get it probably doesn't get hopefully it's not uh, it doesn't get more extreme than this most index most ETFs most instruments aren't gonna face an environment this extreme and so the fact that your your ETF adapted well towards it. And really, dramatically outperformed. Hopefully, that that's a 
that that's a, a good sign for it to adapt to many different types of environments. Yeah, and look, I, like I said, I, I don't think um, we are at the end of disruption events, right? I do think there will be another disruption event. I don't, I don't know what it is, and I and I, again, it's one of those things about trying to predict the market. I have no idea what the future will bring us, but but we weren't prepared for this event. And we think we're prepared for everything. We think the market knows everything. We think the price, the efficient market hypothesis says that everything in the market today is priced with information that we all know or can theoretically know. Right. It didn't have this priced in, certainly. And it certainly didn't yes. price in the severity and the compression of that down and up, right? This so-called yeah. recovery. Yeah. Uh, of course, the recovery that people like to talk about isn't a recovery of the market. It's a recovery of the haves and the have-nots. Yeah. So I think there will be another event and many other events in the future. I just can't predict what they'll be. And, and again, our, our goal is, if I'm right about technology being a significant forward-facing risk, businesses and industries better prepare because it's, it's, gonna, it's changing us in the moment, right? And our brains don't process it at the speed that it happens. Yeah, which is why a lot of times it, it, it's it's always hard for Wall Street to really grasp how fast some of these companies are growing or how analysts are always for some of these major growth stories. They always seem to be behind the ball because like you said, it, uh, it's almost impossible for us to grasp how, how dramatic uh, these growth stories are. Right, right. Yeah, so, you think about the way the analysts work, they work on trying to, you know, gauge the forecast of, of next quarter's earnings. Exactly. It's a fool's errand game, right? You, yeah. it's, it's, it's a very hard thing to do. And, and so they build their own models trying to figure that out and then they get it wrong uh, more than they get it right. And, and, and that's why there's only one winner of the, the II best analyst, right? And so um, you see that happen over and over again and they still don't learn from their own, their own errors of their ways. But I'm not trying to do that either. We're just trying to anticipate what's likely to occur in terms of disruption. And just, as I said, it's just easier yeah. to take the losers out. And, and I can't tell you who the next winner is going to be. No, that, that's perfect. You listen to the market. And, and in the end, the market is going to reward those, those companies that truly are changing the world. So thanks, David. This is a great story of why we always like to focus on growth in a fast-changing world. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Next week, we will have Austin Lieberman on the show. Austin is a lead advisor for 7investing.com. So that's it for this week on Investing with IVD. I'm Arusha Pierce, and thanks for listening. And for this week's Nilton Charts, make sure to go to investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.